Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look through a wide-angle lens at the current flare-up of the conflict in Israel and Palestine, including a discussion of disparate power dynamics, lived experience in Palestine, the creation story of Hamas, understanding the definition of apartheid, and recognizing how the reactions in American politics and media are shifting. Clips today include a segment from The Mill series featuring the late great Michael Brooks, Deconstructed, The Intercept, AJ+, Chapo Trap House, Ring of Fire Radio, and The Empire Files. As someone with a Jewish background, how do you feel about Bernie's plan for Israel, especially as someone concerned with foreign policy? I love it. It's absolutely necessary. My Jewish values teach me to oppose apartheid. Okay. (laughs) Could you elaborate, please? So for me, my politics are built on a base of, you know, economic justice and actually really like anti-racism, as in some ways as distinct from some of this sort of woke stuff in a way. But when I was, I was already, look, I grew up, you know, I was pretty connected to left politics. So I always knew growing up about the travesty that was the human rights situation there. And I knew that people had think people I admired, like Nelson Mandela said, you know, South Africa is going to not be properly free until the Palestinians are free. In 2006, I believe, I wrote, I read a piece by a guy named Tony Jutt in the New York Review of Books, who was a really important Jewish scholar. And he just said, like, the argument was that, like, literally this is childish. Like, the idea that you have an ethno state or a religious state, if you're committed to any type of broad-based social, economic equity, and civil society, it doesn't work. No matter how justified, of course there's justification because of Jewish history for Israel. There's justification for Kurdistan because of Kurdish reality. There's justification for Pakistan. It's notable that Israel and Pakistan are both disasters. Israel not in the sense of, you know, look, if you're a European Jewish background, you have a nice life there. If you're not, you are, even inside 67 borders, not a fully equal citizen. And the situation in the West Bank is, I mean, it is literally Jim Crow-like. And Gaza is, I mean, it's just an atrocity. So that's not something that anybody can reasonably ask me to support. And I understand, you know, yeah, there's some actions from some Palestinian groups that, you know, we can condemn. In fact, those have not even really been in any way seriously in play since like 2003. And when we talk about, you know, look, and the apartheid word specifically is both used by people who were crucial in ending apartheid in South Africa, like Desmond Tutu or Ronnie Casrols, who served as intelligence minister under Mbeki, who I've interviewed. And the other main people who use the apartheid word are Ehud Omer and Ehud Barak. So... It is what it is. And I don't support second-class citizenship and occupation and sieges for anybody, no matter who they are. Are you not concerned about the binary between either condemning Israel entirely being like also a stance that a lot of like very strong and notorious anti-Semitic people agree with versus like, you know, seeing this as more of a complex issue where it is wrong what's going on and that there's also a way to do this that Israel still exists and is supported. So it's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. It acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. And just as like a thought experiment, IDW people, If we know that if somehow a population of Jewish refugees ended up in West Bank and Gaza and an Arabic government in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv had an open air prison in in what, you know, Jewish Gaza, which they bombed with white phosphorus, they killed civilians indiscriminately and they had no uh, provisions for medicine, 
They had an embargo that blocked food, that the electricity wasn't running, that there was an over 48% unemployment rate, life expectancy and malnutrition statistics were horrifying. The, uh, one of the major policymakers in this hypothetical Arabic-Palestinian state said, we need to put those Jews on a diet. In the West Bank, there was another Jewish area where there was a little bit more autonomy, but there was regular Arabic settlements where they pulled up the Jewish farmers' foods, they terrorized them with rocks, the security forces broke children's bones, and they couldn't drive their own roads. We'd all have no problem understanding what that was. So there's nothing complex about it. The second part of your question, it's a pure asymmetry relationship. And the question is rights or not. So that's it, it's not complicated. The second part of your question, at this point, there's always been, there's always gonna be crackpots who are anti-Semitic who condemn Israel. That's not what drives the movement, it's particularly in the United States. If you work around most people who are concerned with this issue, it's actually populated with a lot of Jewish people. The real question we have to ask is why is it that APAC is hosting a information minister for Slobodan Milosevic? Why is it that there's relationships between the Israeli government and far-right parties in Europe? Why is it that Benjamin Netanyahu's son is posting borderline alt-right memes? Why is it that Israel is an alt-right state even though it is from the descendants of the victims of one of the greatest crimes in history. That's a serious question, and that's inseparable from the racism of the project, which goes back to the first part that we have to solve. But thank you. Shalom. Over the last decade, Israel has aggressively fortified its wall and its security apparatus, and it has rapidly expanded settlements in the West Bank and throughout the occupied territories, in clear violation of international law and norms. One thing often missing from this conversation is what all of this looks like from the other side of those checkpoints. The settlements here in the West Bank are usually more violent settlers that really don't believe in Palestinians at all. That's our guest today. Journalist Mariam Barghouti, who is based in the city of Ramallah on the West Bank. She joins us now. Mariam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the neighborhood that you live in? So I live in Ramallah, which is uh, considered the de facto headquarters of the Palestinian Authority. Mm -hmm. And it is located in the West Bank. It's, you know, surrounded by checkpoints almost in every direction. And it, it is considered quote-unquote Area A, which means it's under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. But military incursions by Israel are commonplace here. But it's my neighborhood's relatively quiet. How much has it changed uh, since you've lived there? A lot. The Ramallah has changed drastically in the past couple of years, especially with this attempt of turning it into this metropolitan city by the Palestinian Authority and, and stationing themselves here as the de facto headquarters. You've seen old homes um, uh, demolished that kind of date back to the 60s and the 50s and replaced by commercial buildings, becoming more densely populated because it is the center of uh, job opportunities of non-governmental organizations and international non-governmental organizations, as well as media spaces so it's changed heavily, and it's also becoming gentrified hmm. in different areas. And what's daily life like there? Like, how much freedom of movement do you have? If you leave your place, how far can you go before you run into a checkpoint? Not very far, and it's misleading to suggest that there is there is a distance because flying checkpoints are commonplace where the Israeli military can just station itself in any direction depending on the day and what's happening and, and you'll be stopped like any set permanent checkpoint. So you could like leave, go to a restaurant, there'd be no checkpoint and then when you head home, there could be one on the way home. See, that's the thing. It depends. So within Ramallah, the city center itself, there are absolutely no checkpoints. I have Mm -hmm. relatively free access to movement. And you can even pretend that there is no occupation here. So it's a little more subtle and clandestine in, in Ramallah. 
But it's not just the Israeli military occupation in Ramallah. We're also watched and um, surveilled by the Palestinian Authority police. So just because we're not physically stopped at Mm -hmm. checkpoints, we are still stopped in our ability to express freely and our ability to pursue our lives freely as well. What is the relationship nowadays between, not to get too off track, but between younger Palestinians, the PA, and the police force of the PA? It's, it's a very antagonistic relationship. The Palestinian Authority has constantly acted as the arm of Israel in, in the West Bank. And in terms of youth, there's a huge uh, sense of distrust towards the Palestinian Authority and their police recently as protests in support of what is currently happening in uprisings around uh, Palestine. The Palestinian Authority started arresting Palestinians mm-hmm. in Ramallah near the Muqata, which is the headquarters and the compound, the presidential compound, essentially. Palestinian police pulled a gun on protesters and youth. So the, the relationship is, I don't think there is a relationship, if mm-hmm. I'm honest. W- what has been the Palestinian Authority's posture toward these protests like in in general over the last couple weeks like from the top it's a hesitant support so the palestinian authority commonly monopolizes or weaponizes palestinian protest for their own gain and i think right now they're afraid that it threatens their own positions of power because they were created under the oslo accords they were created within the system of the israeli military occupation here and they're, they feel threatened in terms of whatever little power and, and jurisdiction they have could go away as well. Mm-hmm. I've heard some people argue that one reason that Hamas kind of stepped into this, this conversation that was mostly taking place elsewhere, outside of Gaza, was to show up the PA or to establish itself as somebody willing to stand up where the, the PA leadership wasn't. What do you make of that? And how have people where you live received Hamas's kind of intervention into this? I think that's a disservice and an insult to the, to the situation here. And it's an oversimplification of it. Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian political factions generally have had a very distraught relationship but especially with Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, with the division between Gaza and the West Bank, I don't think Hamas is trying to show muscle power, basically, in the face of the Palestinian Authority. And if it is, let's also give Palestinians the agency and the recognition that we're more intelligent than that. Mm-hmm. Right now, Gaza has been under siege for 15 years. If you hear Palestinians ululate, what is happening in regards of the Hamas response, it is not a ululation to Hamas. It is a call out to end the siege. It is a call out to stop the systemic violence on Gaza. If you've been imprisoned, if you've been held in an open air prison for 15 years, you're going to kick and scream and shout by any means possible and available to you. This focus on Hamas, as because it is firing rockets, because it is using armed confrontation, is a disservice again to the Palestinian people. Hamas is often described in the U.S. media as a terrorist organization. What's, the, what's your response to that? And what do people in your generation feel about like that label? So... The Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, was declared a terrorist organization by Israel and the U.S. before that every Palestinian political faction has or is on the American terrorist list. But currently the PLO became, you know, Israel's best friend and the Americans only discuss any affairs of Palestinians with the PLO. And let's remember things like Nelson Mandela was considered a terrorist. And now he's very glorified and glamorized, even in in the U.S. So organizations or any confrontation of an oppressed group is almost always initially called a terrorist organization until people begin to see the unequal power dynamics that are present within the context. So contextualizing the situation, I think, will allow us to redefine terrorism. And if anyone is confused about what terrorism is, 
maybe they should look up what terrorism means in the U.S. Code of uh, Federal Regulations. And it's the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. This is literally Israel. Officially, Hamas, which is the acronym for an Arabic phrase meaning Islamic resistance movement, was founded in 1987 at the start of the first Palestinian Intifada or uprising against the Israeli occupation. But its roots were planted much earlier. The Hamas founder, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, was a half-blind, disabled Palestinian cleric and member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood had been repressed by the Egyptians in Gaza prior to 1967. But once the Israelis invaded and occupied the Strip, they didn't just turn a blind eye to these Islamists. They encouraged them. See, the Israelis, especially right-wing Israelis, wanted to undermine the power of the dominant Palestinian political force at that time, the nationalist PLO, at the heart of which was the secular Fatah party of Yasser Arafat, their bête noire. By empowering Sheikh Yassin and the Muslim Brotherhood, Israeli leaders thought they could divide and rule the occupied Palestinians, play them off against each other, secular nationalists against religious Islamists. So in 1978, when Yassin wanted to officially register his Islamic association, which was basically the precursor to Hamas, the Israelis were only too keen to help. Yassin built and grew a network of Islamist social institutions across Gaza, including schools and clubs and mosques, and Israel helped fund some of those projects. Most American politicians have no clue about any of this, although the former Republican Congressman Ron Paul once made this point on the floor of the House. Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser. Arafat himself told an Italian newspaper, quote, Hamas is a creature of Israel. He even claimed that former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin admitted as much to him, calling it a fatal error. Now, you might be wondering, why should I believe mad Ron Paul or the famously shady Yasser Arafat? Well, you don't have to. You can believe top Israeli and US officials who've basically owned up to all this. Brigadier Yitzhak Segev, for example, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza and later told the New York Times reporter that he helped finance the Islamic movement. The Israeli government gave me a budget, he said, and the military government gives to the mosques. Colonel David Hakam, who worked in Gaza in the late 1980s as an Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military, has admitted that the original sin was Israeli support for Yassin in the late 70s. But at the time, he has argued, nobody thought about the possible results. Well, Avner Cohen did. Cohen was the Israeli official who was responsible for religious affairs in Gaza for more than two decades, and who now says, quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. Yeah. Cohen's words. He actually wrote an official report to his superiors in the mid-1980s, warning them not to play divide and rule in the occupied territories and calling on Israel to, quote, break up this monster before this reality jumps in our face. But no one else on the Israeli side really took the possibility of blowback seriously at that time. They never do, do they? Hamas has since killed far more Israeli civilians than any secular Palestinian militant group, and its leaders have been pretty viciously anti-Israeli and even anti-Semitic in their rhetoric. Yassin would eventually be assassinated by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza. Sheikh Yassin and its organization, the Hamas, are responsible to the killings of more than 400 Israelis. So the question shouldn't be why now? I think it should be why not before. Why not before? Well, because before, Israel was actually nudging and winking at Yassin and co, building them up as a rival to Arafat's Fatah. The die was cast for blowback. Blowback, incidentally, that they decided to double down on when they assassinated Yassin. You can hear the crowds chanting for Hamas, and any idea that this operation would actually suppress or diminish that organization seems to be ill-judged. The inconvenient truth is that Hamas is in part a creature of Israel's own making, an enemy that Israel spent more than 20 years helping to build up, and then spent the next 20 years, the past 20 years that is, trying to bomb, besiege, and blockade out of existence. The three Gaza wars fought by Israel against Hamas since 2008 
killed around 2,000 Palestinian civilians and a dozen Israeli civilians. That's the real human cost of blowback. David Long, a former Middle East expert at the US State Department under Ronald Reagan, told journalist Robert Dreyfus, I thought the Israelis were playing with fire. I didn't realize they'd end up creating a monster. But I don't think you ought to mess around with potential fanatics. It's a lesson both the Israelis and the Americans never seem to learn, though. And as usual, innocent people, in this case Palestinians and Israelis, continue to lose their lives as a result. Many people think of Israel and Palestine as two countries at war, with this one, a state for Jewish people, occupying this one here, where Palestinians live. The truth is, both Israeli Jews and Palestinians live all over this territory, ruled by one government and one army, based on the idea of advancing the supremacy and domination of one group of people, Jews. And that is what guides its policies and its practices towards Palestinians. In other words, apartheid. Apartheid is a loaded word tied to the racist South African regime of white minority rule. But although the word comes from there, apartheid isn't just a description of what happened in South Africa. It's actually a crime against humanity under international law. In 2021, Human Rights Watch accused Israel of carrying out apartheid. It based this accusation on the 1973 Apartheid Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute, which say that three elements have to occur for the crime of apartheid to apply. They are an intent by one group to dominate the other, systematic oppression by one racial group over another, and one or more inhumane acts, like denying people the right to leave and to return to their country, expropriation of landed property, and the creation of separate reserves and ghettos. So let's see if any of these apply to Israel's rule over Palestinians. About half of the people that live here under Israel's rule are Palestinian and the other half are Jews, like myself. For those 7 million Israeli Jews, almost the entire land is one space. Whether they're here or here, they have the same rights, privileges, and legal status. They can move freely, vote in the same elections, and live under the same laws. The boundaries are invisible to them. But for the 7 million Palestinians, the boundaries are very visible. Whereas this is essentially one space for Israelis, Palestinians have been divided into four areas. Each area gets a different colored ID card issued by Israel, and your life and rights are determined by that ID card. In Gaza, Palestinians have no freedom of movement and are under a complete Israeli blockade. Israel no longer has soldiers inside Gaza, but it controls every aspect of life from the outside. People in Gaza have no civil or political rights. They've got no say in the Israeli government that controls them. Palestinians in the West Bank also have very limited freedom of movement, with their population divided into 165 disconnected cantons, cut off by Israeli military checkpoints, walls, settlements, and other infrastructure. They also have no civil or political rights in Israel. In East Jerusalem, Palestinians generally have more freedom to move, but Israel can take away their right to live in the city. They can't vote in Israeli elections, and Israel also bars them from taking part in Palestinian politics. Palestinians who are citizens of Israel can travel relatively freely, but they face restrictions on where they can live. They can vote in Israeli elections, but face legalized discrimination. Yara Hawari is a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship. This ID system, it penetrates, you know, all areas of life, where you live, uh, where you study, what you work, etc. Even the more intimate areas of life, such as who you marry. That's because for the most part, a Palestinian can't pass on their ID status to their spouse. And this has huge implications on where they can live. Many indeed actually end up leaving and choosing to live abroad because it is that difficult. On rare occasions, Palestinians are able to change their ID, but only in one direction. So for instance, if a Palestinian from East Jerusalem moves uh, somewhere else inside the West Bank, they could lose their residency in East Jerusalem. And Israel, since it's considered that a downgrade, then that's a direction that would be feasible. And further down the line, again, from Israel's perspective, 
if West Bankers uh, move to the Gaza Strip, uh, then that's a direction that Israel will accept, but not in the opposite direction. So while Palestinians are granted different rights based on their IDs, nowhere do those rights match those of Israeli Jews. Looks like we can check off at least one of the elements required for apartheid to apply. When Israel was founded in 1948, 700,000 Palestinians had fled or been forced out. The result was that the new state had a Jewish majority. To maintain that majority, Israel has never allowed the refugees to return. The Palestinians who remained were given Israeli citizenship, although they were kept under strict military rule for 19 years. But in 1967, when Israel occupied more lands, including Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, it faced a problem. It wanted the land, but didn't want the Palestinians on that land. So it's refused to extend citizenship to the rest of the Palestinians under its control, while keeping them under military rule ever since. To further control the ratio of Palestinians to Israeli Jews, Israel still bans Palestinian refugees and their descendants from moving into any of the territories it controls, while encouraging any Jewish person anywhere in the world to immigrate to Israel, even if they've never set foot there before. In Jerusalem, the Israeli authorities actually have a population target, 60% Jews to 40% Palestinians. Palestinians in Jerusalem are only granted a permanent residency permit, even if they've been living in the city since before Israel was founded. About 350,000 Palestinians are in that status, uh, and which is Orwellian the way it's defined, because the only thing permanent in permanent residency is that it can actually always be taken away. These permits can be revoked if a Palestinian moves out of the city, but Jewish Israelis living in Jerusalem never lose residency, even if they move to the other side of the world. This discrimination has been enshrined in Israeli law. The 2018 nation-state law says that Israel is the nation-state of the Jewish people and that the right to national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. That means that even Palestinians with Israeli citizenship aren't considered equal to Jews with Israeli citizenship. As Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put it, Israel is not a state of all its citizens, but rather the nation-state of the Jewish people and only them. So let's go back to that list from before. The nation-state law is only one of many Israeli laws that explicitly discriminate against Palestinians. For example, there's the 1950 Absentees Property Law. Deeming Palestinian refugees absentees, Israel seized hundreds of thousands of acres of their land, even though they were only absent because Israel wouldn't let them return. Remember, denying people the right to return to their country is on the list of inhumane acts that legally make up the third element of apartheid. There are more Israeli policies that could fall under the category of inhumane acts, especially when it comes to land. So Israel desires the land, uh, even more so desires empty land or land that it makes empty, uh, and doesn't desire the Palestinians living on that land. And that has resulted in policies in which land is constantly moving in one direction. Land that used to be Palestinian becomes state land, and then that land is allocated for the development of towns and communities for Jewish citizens. And yes, expropriation of land is also an inhumane act. So let's see what that looks like on the ground. Across the entire territory, Palestinian communities are overcrowded and surrounded by Jewish-only communities. It's the same type of practice of encircling Palestinian communities so that they, they can't expand, cutting them off from one another. It's a continuous practice that began in 1948 and was expanded to the West Bank in, in 1967. The Israeli state prioritizes Jewish development in places where it wants to restrict the growth of Palestinian communities, with the government keen to Judaize areas like the Galilee and the Negev. Israeli politicians frequently use that term to Judaize an area, in other words, to ensure Israeli Jewish dominance in a particular area where you know the government has a concern over the Palestinian demography. And in any other context, this would be condemned as you know gross ethnic engineering. It's in its basic laws, which is essentially the Israeli constitution. The land is deemed for the Jewish people, not the Israeli people, but the Jewish people. In fact, only 3% of the land inside Israel's 1948 borders is allocated for its Palestinian citizens. 
Meanwhile, hundreds of new communities have been built for its Jewish citizens, many on the ruins of destroyed Palestinian villages. Plus, there's the 200 illegal Jewish settlements that have been built across the West Bank as well. At the same time, thousands of Palestinian homes have been demolished or are under threat of demolition, having been built without permits because Israel rejects most Palestinian building applications. Meanwhile, in the Negev desert, the Israeli government wants to maximize the land available for Jewish development. So it has tried to force Palestinian Bedouin citizens into small townships by demolishing their homes and not allowing them to connect to the water and power grids. One village, El Arakib, has been demolished more than 180 times. Now, just across the Green Line, a similar struggle is taking place in the village of Susia, which is in the West Bank, just south of Hebron. And it too has faced uh, a series of mass demolitions by authorities in an attempt to establish Israeli Jewish control over the area. Looks like we can check off another one of the criteria for apartheid. Israel has total control of this entire territory, even in Gaza and the West Bank, which have some limited autonomous Palestinian administration in place. Israel controls the borders, trade, resources, water, electricity, the airspace, the electromagnetic spectrum, the population registry, and more. Accusing a government of carrying out a crime against humanity like apartheid is no simple matter. But we've seen how Israel's control over and discrimination against Palestinians fits the legal threshold for apartheid. Israel's own leaders knew this was happening, although they didn't do much to stop it. The state that you have at the moment is an apartheid state, isn't it? It's not yet apartheid, but it might uh, come on this slippery slope toward apartheid. Still, how could apartheid apply to Israel when, say, Palestinian citizens can vote? So as a Palestinian citizen of Israel, I cannot question the fundamental, the fundamental constitution of Israel, which says that the state is for the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone. My citizenship doesn't allow for inclusion in that state. And so therefore, participation in Israeli elections or in the Knesset is really nominal and has no, has no potential to change policy. Another argument against the accusation of apartheid is that the occupation is only temporary, and when it ends, Palestinians will rule themselves. Common people don't think that 54 years is temporary. Uh, we've passed that line already a very long time ago. And yeah, there's a lot of Israeli propaganda uh, insisting on that worldview of democracy plus temporary occupation. No, it's not a democracy and it's not a temporary occupation. It's one regime between the river and the sea, and that regime is apartheid. So the Palestinians who live in Sheikh Jarrah haven't lived there for hundreds of years. Those families moved there in the 50s and the early 50s. The reason they moved there is because they were refugees forced out by Israel from their homes near Haifa and the Mediterranean coast. When Israel was founded, 700,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from the territory that became the state of Israel. That's three quarters of the Palestinian population at the time. They were either forced out at gunpoint or they fled after hearing reports about the many massacres that were committed by Zionist paramilitaries prior to the establishment of the state of Israel. And that ethnic cleansing is the only reason and the only way that Israel was able to create a Jewish majority. It was deliberate ethnic engineering to force out the people who were living there, who were the majority, and create a Jewish ethnostate where Jews would be the majority in a state where they were a definite minority until just a few months prior. And so the families that moved into Sheikh Jarrah did so because at the time, Israel hadn't yet occupied the West Bank. The West Bank, including East Jerusalem, was under the governance of Jordan. And the Jordanian government, in coordination with the United Nations, had offered this plot of land in Sheikh Jarrah to these families in exchange for them giving up their refugee status, essentially giving up their claims to return to their homes in near Haifa that the Israelis had taken over. And so what happened is after Israel occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank and took over is that these families who had already been ethnically cleansed from their homes once were facing the exact same thing again. 
we're talking about generational, like a generational cycle. And that's what makes Shechara so poignant, because it's not unique in the sense that Israel has been trying to kick out Palestinians from several neighborhoods in, in, in Jerusalem for the same reason, among them Silwan, which is just south of the old city, and where a, a settler organization called Elad, which I believe is also registered in the U.S. as a nonprofit, and received $100 million from the Israeli-Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea Football Club. At the Guardian and BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed revealed last year that he'd actually spent $100 million on this organization that explicitly works to um, ethnically cleanse the village of Silwan. And their reason, or their stated reason for doing it, is that there is a archaeological site under this village, dating back to the times of King David, thousands of years ago. And so, therefore, because King David possibly once lived there, Therefore, it belongs to Jewish people. Uh, yeah. Very reminiscent of there's an anecdote of Netanyahu. He displays some, you know, coin in his uh, office yeah. that he says the Hebrew on a trans, the ancient Hebrew on it translates to Netanyahu, which is, yeah, a Hungarian name <laughs> that's existed for 500 years. Yeah. With echoes of that. And I think, actually, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Netanyahu name was actually adopted. So that wasn't even the original family name. I need to double check no, that. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the... So what Elad does in Silwan is they've created a archaeological park and slowly, by, bit by bit, taking over land around the houses, around the homes. In some places, bribing some of these Palestinian families after choking them off, bribing them then with some payment exchange for the houses. The ones who stay behind, they suffer from humiliations, checkpoints, inability to build, to grow, to expand. And they're building this archaeological park. And obviously, the main it's a tourist attraction for American evangelicals. They're the main people who go there. That's the main, that's the main audience. So Sheikh Jarrah, Sidwan, all these areas, these are these are like a these represent a continuation of the Israeli policy in 1948 to remove Palestinians from land that it desires and replace them with Jewish settlers. And what's really interesting is there was a sign at one of the pro-Palestine protests that erupted over the U.S. that stuck with me. Someone held up a sign that said, every Israeli town was once Sheikh Jarrah. And if you think about it, that's essentially the crux of this issue. Right? Every Israeli town was once populated by Palestinians who had been forced out and replaced with Israeli Jews. And you know, that's why it's that's why it's hilarious when the Israeli foreign ministry says that what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah is just a private real estate dispute between two private parties. It's not, right? It's state backed. And the the other thing is under international law, Israel should have Israeli courts should have no jurisdiction over East Jerusalem anyway, because it's mm -hmm. considered occupied territory. So there's layers to how much the Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah there's layers to how much they're forced to endure. And it's not a private real estate dispute because the Israeli state is fully complicit in this, whether through, you know, the forced evictions that are made by Israeli soldiers and, and the police, or it's the court system that refuses to hear the... Oh, so this is the other thing. We're talking about the crux of the issue. The claim by these Israeli settler organizations that the land in Sheikh Jarrah once belonged to Jews. And they're using like land deeds from the Ottoman Empire to prove this. And there's question marks about how valid these land deeds are. Some of them may be forgeries, some not. But what's interesting is that they're not saying we have to return this land to the people who owned it. They're saying that because Jews once lived here, then any Jew could then move in and kick out the Palestinians who live there now. And that's why you get Jacob from Brooklyn moving in to these families' houses. At the same time, I mentioned that the Sheikh Jarrah families are originally from near Haifa. Israeli courts don't allow them to make a claim to return to their houses that are still there. So the Israeli courts will hear any case for any Jewish organization that wants to reclaim the land that a Jew might not have lived in for hundreds of thousands of years. But a Palestinian who's still alive and says, I want to go back to the house that, that was mine a few decades ago. The Israeli court system will not hear that argument, will not allow it. And that is a testament to the apartheid system that Israel is running against Palestinians.
just from your observations, you've been watching this, uh, you know, professionally in some form or another for almost two decades as well. What what do you notice that is different this time around? Well, it's, you know, it's really different. I mean, this is not the the same, you know, I mean, these, these situations have flared up from time to time. And as you point out, it's been sometimes much worse than others. And in the past, there was bipartisan reflexive agreement to, you know, endorse, well, if not outright endorse, support the Israeli position on it. It's a matter of self-defense. They have a right to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And you still hear some of that, even from the president who said that said the same thing. Israel's our ally. We support it, whatever. And of course, it was always a fatuous kind of, of response because the issue, you know, the Palestinians who live there are also living there. You know, I mean, this is not a matter of, you know, two countries fighting one another. This is much more, it's a, it's an apartheid situation, which is also a word that we're starting to see used in respectable foreign policy circles in a way that it never has been before. And that's really important because if you go back and you look at what happened with South Africa, for instance, it took that kind of clarity of people actually calling out the system and actually saying, look, we, we are just not going to support this. We can't support it. And it was fought you know, tooth and nail by the right and by the center for a long time. And it finally changed partially due to internal issues in South Africa, but also partially due to the international pressure that brought that about. So what we're seeing here in the United States, I think, and we talked about this a little bit last week, I think that there's been a kind of a, you know, a consciousness raising among Democrats and the center and maybe even some Republicans, because you're even seeing some movement there of the non-evangelical right kind of being a little bit more skittish about going all in with Israel on this. And I think it has to do with our new awareness of, it's, it's a new awareness, although it's been a reality forever, the, our own history of apartheid, our own sense that, you know, the, the, the kind of racist colonial systems that have been in place for centuries, it, there has to be a reckoning for that. And we're seeing also the authoritarian right-wing government of Israel under Benjamin Netanyahu reflected in our own situation here politically on the right with this rising authoritarianism, Donald Trump, and there, and the fact that Donald Trump was so incredibly close with Netanyahu, basically could, said he could do no wrong. They had Jared Kushner over there every five minutes doing everything he could to shore up Israel's power in the region. And I think that a lot of Americans, particularly in the Democratic Party, are starting to see that this is not a... It's not a sustainable position for America to take anymore. And I mean, I think there's, we're seeing it in Europe too. You know, I mean, this is a general Western sort of retreat from reflexive support of Israel, no matter what it does. And, you know, mainly because it's insupportable. I mean, that's just the reality. And has been for a long time, but you know, it has been. But but there is there is a definitely a different perspective on it. I should just say that in terms of Europe, the irony is that uh, the Europeans have always been slightly more skeptical. It seems to me of of reflexively taking Israel's side in these things. But what, now what we're seeing is that there are elements in Europe thinking about mm -hmm. Victor Orban and other uh, more authoritarian regimes that are basically and and Israel has made the Israeli government has made no secret of their alliances with some of these far-right mm -hmm. fascist fascistic movements in Europe. I, the exact quote escapes me, but a high-placed military, Israeli military official, this was some years back, was asked directly, like, how can you do this? You know, or, and I think it maybe was also in the context of the Christian Zionist movement in this country. Like, how can you ally yourself with people who, you know, ultimately want to see you burn in hell because you're mm -hmm. not in the Israeli general? was like, well... When it comes to that, we'll deal with that issue. But in the meantime, we'll take their support. And that is, you know, a very dangerous uh, game that is being played with there. And in fact, my understanding is that some reporting suggests that Netanyahu has advisors who are basically saying we need to give up on diaspora Jews, particularly, you know, American Jewry. Yeah as uh, the, our our basis of support in the United States and rely on the Christian Zionists. And, and look, this has been coming for some time. And there's a couple of factors that seem to be uh, working out. First off, when Netanyahu came and spoke to the Republican Congress 
as a snub to Barack Obama. I remember when Tim Kaine, of all people, said he wasn't going to go. And there was a couple of Democratic senators who were saying, I'm not attending this session. And to me, that was the first example I saw of a certain type of politician who would have never dared to do something like that because it just there was no upside to it or there was no there was too much of a of uh, a discipline issued if someone took that type of you know sort of moral stance or something like that against israel and that has changed we're seeing that change across the board we have you know multiple members of congress members of the squad raising issues like uh, delaying, if not canceling, weapon sales. Bernie Sanders is out there very vocally saying these things as an American Jew. And I also think there's a generational change. I mean, I, I grew up in an era where, like uh, many people my age, you know, in, in their early to mid-50s or, you know, and older, in the wake of the Holocaust, in the wake of the establishment of the state of Israel, and the wake of multiple attempts to to destroy Israel. I mean, you know, the 1970, the Yom Kippur War, the 1967 War, et cetera, et cetera. And much of my Jewish education was essentially pillared. The pillars of it were the Holocaust and the existence of Israel, and then maybe a little bit Hebrew. And and I think that has changed. I think over the years, there has been a, a more uh, jaundiced view of Israel, and it has not been a, it has not, you know, the perspective on it has changed, and particularly with this younger generation. And like you say, I think there's also been a greater awareness of this dynamic of like, you know, when you see police go in and beat Palestinians living in their homes, it starts to, I think for a lot of Americans, they can start to, they start to understand the vernacular here because they're watching it in this country now on some level as well. You know, because it, largely this is a function of, of phone cameras again. And, and so there has been a marked change, I think. And this, it's going to be interesting to see what it, it feels like Biden is, was both a taken thought that he could avoid all of this just generally and also surprised by the fact that like he couldn't just ignore it because there were members of his own party mm-hmm. going to be upset about it and voters and i i don't know i mean twitter is not the the end all be all but if you look at these things it has it has changed it really has uh, changed. And I think I don't know what this is going to bring about. But, you know, the United States gives Israel almost four billion dollars a year in 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 technology. I mean, excuse me, in in war technology mm-hmm. in in and that money makes a difference to Israel. I mean, we keep hearing that it doesn't, but it does. I'm quite convinced. And that support. And I really do think we are just. It is a matter of time before Israel loses American support if you're in a position where Democrats are in control. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Mill series, which featured Michael Brooks giving his thoughts on the dynamics at play in Israel and Palestine. Deconstructed spoke with a resident of Palestine to understand the lived experience there. The Intercept highlighted the story of how Hamas was created. AJ Plus broke down the elements of apartheid and how they apply to Israel. Chapo Trap House looked at the history of ethnic cleansing and how apartheid rules function to maintain the ethno-state. And Ring of Fire Radio discussed the turning tide in the media and politics in U.S. opinion. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Empire Files, which debunked the circular logic of the human shield rationale for why Israel should be allowed to kill civilians, and AJ Plus took an even deeper dive into the media coverage of Israel in the U.S., how bad it is, and how it's beginning to shift. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort, but to hear that and all of our bonus 
bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, I have a special lesson for you. For context, I received a message recently, and I've converted a portion of it into a voicemail so that we can have a listen, because this is what inspired me to launch a brand new mini educational series. So let's go. Your show is an aggregator, right? You pull things from other shows. So why should I donate to your show rather than donate to Riv Left, or Antifada, or Democracy Now? Democracy Now is a show that I personally pledge my money to. I don't think you do anything original that is worth millions or thousands of people donating their money towards. I think you should be grateful for what you have. The way I contribute to your show is by recommending it to others. But I would rather give my money to the actual people who are doing the original content themselves. So that got me thinking, but to start... I want to be clear that where people spend their money is a deeply personal thing based on value judgments that are unique for every individual. I don't begrudge anyone donating to any media outlet that they get value from, and I never suggest that anyone should donate to this show instead of any other. That said, it appears that there is some misunderstanding about what we do here— which could be causing people like this person to inadvertently undervalue the work we do. And so to help clear this up, I have designed a series of lessons to better understand what curation is and why it should be valued. Today's lesson is on a clarification of terms. So to his first point. Your show is an aggregator, right? You pull things from other shows. More precisely, what I do is curation, and aggregation is one form of curation. Other forms include distillation, elevation, mashup, and chronology. I would argue that I do every one of these varieties of curations at different times and will address the other forms on another day, but quoting from the article The Five Models of Content Curation, Here is what it says about aggregation. Quote, aggregation. There is a flood of information online, and Google can only give you a best guess at the most relevant, but there are millions and millions of pages returned for any search result. Aggregation is the act of curating the most relevant information about a particular topic into a single location. This is the most common form of content curation. You still may have hundreds of pieces of source material, but just the fact that it is in a single location and not millions of pieces of information has a high value for people interested in a particular topic, unquote. And when I read this and other things like it, it got me thinking in the comparison I like is of museum exhibits versus a museum storage warehouse. The warehouse has shelves to the ceiling, endless rows of boxes, Basically, think of the last scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Even if everything is meticulously labeled so that you could, in theory, find what you're looking for, no one would go to a museum that was just a well-organized warehouse. It is the curators at museums who make the exhibits consumable and useful for people. Next up, in the article, Why Curation is Important to the Future of Journalism, a quote is attributed to Andy Carvin, senior strategist for NPR, who ran their social media desk back in 2011 at the time of writing, highlighting the true meaning of the word media. Quote, It means being in the middle, in this case, between sources and and the public. So curating really isn't that different than what reporters have always done. It's just in real time and a hell of a lot more transparent." 
And the same article pulled another relevant quote, this time from Ernie Smith, editor of Short Form Blog, saying that curators are like tour guides. Quote, Good curators know where to find interesting things because they know the paths and can provide a knowledgeable voice to make things a little easier to parse. A good curator can see a clear direction and show others the way. Unquote. So to wrap up, Addressing the caller's primary question. So, why should I donate to your show rather than donate to Riv Left, or Antifada, or Democracy Now? The problem is that the question is making a false comparison. Best of Left is not a traditional media outlet and shouldn't be compared to them along a false dichotomy of original versus aggregated content. The work we do is much more similar to the museum curator who applies deep wells of knowledge and experience to be able to carefully research, select, arrange, and label artifacts in a way that creates deeply informative and often moving exhibits for those who visit. And I, like the museum curator, after creating an exhibit of deeply researched and meticulously arranged material— metaphorically, step out of the way so that people can experience what's been created. But when I do that and step out of the way, it's not a surprise then that through this process, people would ultimately undervalue all of the work that is invisible to them. The particular irony is that making it look easy is actually evidence of how much work goes into the finished product. Now, there's much more to be learned about curation in future lessons, but if you've already been spurred to action, you can support the work we do by becoming a member. You can donate to us directly or through Patreon. All of the details are at bestofleft.com support, and that link will be down in the show notes. Thanks for your attention. Join us for our next lesson. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. And now today, I have something completely different for you. Completely different. We're going to play a game. It's totally just for fun. I have a guessing game, and the prize is six months of free membership. Just came up with it. There's no particular reason for that. And I also give memberships away for free to anyone who can't afford it. So consider it to be of whatever value you think that is. It's going to be fun anyway, though. The question that you are going to be answering is, what did I name my phone? But don't worry, I have hints for you. So, first couple of hints go like this. My computer and my digital watch and my phone are all named on the same theme. I named my computer Deep Thought. I named my digital watch A Pretty Neat Idea. And if you need more hints along these lines, I once gifted my father a custom license plate holder that I think he might even still use, where you can print, you know, your own words around the edge, which reads, One hoopy frood who really knows where his towel is. Which is particularly fitting, because today, basically the occasion for why we're playing this game, is Towel Day. Towel Day is in celebration of the person and body of work being referenced in all of these nonsense phrases. So if you don't already know who and what I'm referring to, I hope that you will do the minimum of digging, find out, and then go read the original material for yourself. The radio plays were also pretty good. I recommend those. Please don't watch the 2005 film. I was aghast at how poorly that was done. Uh, so anyway... For six months of free membership, what did I name my phone that fits with the theme of deep thought computer and a watch named Pretty Neat Idea? I, I have one last, like, particularly important hint for you, though. I, you'd, you'd never guess it without this. My super intelligent phone, 
you must know, is blue. And so when I was trying to think of a name and went and did some research on what an appropriate name for a super intelligent shade of the color blue would be, I promptly found my answer. So send your guesses. There's no time limit on this and no limit to the number of people who can win. If you send me the correct answer, email, voicemail, whatever you want, as long as I can get back in touch with you, I will set you up with a free six-month membership to Best of the Left, so you get all the bonus content and all of that for six months. If you're already a member, then you can just play along for the self-satisfaction that comes with the knowledge of a job well done, just like a well-programmed personality in an automatic door. So keep the comments coming in. As always, you can call us at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.